Well, good morning, everyone. This is our first Sunday after Resurrection Sunday, and it's, a, it's an opportunity that we have to actually begin and, and start a new series that we're going to be in over the next four to five months together, and I'm kind of excited for us for that. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to two places. We're going to do something different today, okay? Go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 19, maybe keep your finger there on, in Acts chapter 19, then flip over toward the end of your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, and uh, I want to share a few thoughts with us as, as a way of introduction to this new sermon series. So again, uh, we're going to be exploring together in these next few months what it means to be the church. I want you to consider something. It is possible for us to gather here in this building week after week doing the things that we've always done and not realize that we are being something other than what Jesus intended his church to be. And so when we look at the book of Ephesians later on, maybe about a month from now, as we explore what this historical church in Ephesus was, I want you to realize it's an opportunity for God to challenge our understanding of what it means to be the church, and it's an opportunity for us to grow more faithful to align with what God has for us as his church. Now, you should be aware by now that in a little over a month from now, I'm going to be embarking on a, a three-month sabbatical. And what this is, is three months where I'll temporarily step away from ministry to very intentionally pursue God and ask him to renew my heart and my mind for the ministry that he's called me to. But this is not a sabbatical season for me alone. This is a season of renewal that's meant for us as a church as a whole. And so over these next three to four months, the elders and leaders here at Trinity are, are, have been praying that, that it'll be a time where God renews us as a congregation, as a community of followers of Jesus together. You may wonder, how do we, how do we get here? Well, a little over a year and a half ago, Tara and I sat down with, with a small group of leaders here, and we were prayerfully asking God to show us how he might renew our hearts and minds for him. I can still remember sitting around the dinner table together talking about these things. This is probably the second meeting or so that, that we had gathered, and, and I remember Celine Aiken sharing with us something that God had been putting on her heart. To share, to, to share with the group and, and for us to consider, is this something that maybe God is, is, is directing our attention toward? And specifically, she challenged us to, to look at a letter, one letter in the book of Revelation chapter 2, specifically to the church in Ephesus. Let me read a few verses for us in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 2 and, and verse 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I, I know you are enduringly pa are pa enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now see, what, you, what I want us to understand is here in Revelation chapter 2, we're given a record of seven letters that Jesus is writing to his church that he established after his resurrection. 
We, we, we celebrated the empty tomb last week, the fact that Jesus was, was, was reborn to new life. He, he defeated death in the grave. But as a result of that, something amazing happened. This world as we knew it was changed because Jesus establishes his church to go forth and to do something, to accomplish something on his behalf. And, and the letters that we see in Revelation chapter 2 are a record of Jesus writing a letter to those churches that he established, to, to his people. The, the church in Ephesus was, was a congregation that, that worked hard to guard and protect the truth of God. We'll get into this in the coming weeks, but Ephesus was a very important city in, in, in its region. It, it, it was kind of like a melting pot of cultures and, and all, all focused around this idea of trade and business. But, but, but in particular, as the church got its feet grounded, it found itself in a place where, where it had to be a people that stood up for the truth of God in opposition to many different worldviews surrounding it. And so here, you hear Jesus commenting on how, how wonderful they've done and working hard, toiling for the truth, guarding the, the truth of God, standing up for what is right and good and true from the Lord, but also opposing those who are teaching falsehoods and lies. At, at the point when John records this letter, the church in Ephesus had been around for about 30 years. So, so they've gotten some practice under their belts. Those early years of being the church and, and getting their feet on the ground and, and, and learning what it means to follow Jesus in, in a, a world surrounded by many worldviews, they've gotten some experience around that. 30 years of experience, right? But, but as much as it may appear, God didn't find everything about what they were doing to be good, to be healthy. And in fact, I would imagine, I, I, it doesn't say it directly, but I would imagine Jesus finds the need to write this letter to the church because maybe they've forgotten or they don't realize that what they're doing is not all good. Look at verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says this. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. See, the, the church, the people of God, they, they came firing out of the gate. They were excited for the mission that God had given them. They were passionate. They were zealous for God's word and for his truth. But they, they had forgotten their first love. Here's the thing, church. In, in the Ephesian congregation's zealous pursuit of guarding the truth, of being that church that, that upholds and is faithful to the word of God, They'd forgotten what it means to be the people of God, to be the people of truth. Not, not just to be the people who gather in, 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 in cohorts and, and say, yeah, we, we're the people of, of, of Jesus, but to actually live as if they are the people of Jesus. Standing up for and guarding God's truth is not a bad thing. Okay, I, I know that that's what it may sound like when, when we hear Jesus' letter to his church in Ephesus, that, that the church has done something wrong by guarding the word of God, but that's not it at all. The problem isn't that they stood up for and guarded God's truth, but, but, but here's the thing. If we become so zealous to guard the truth, to say that we know the word of God, 
to, to be so zealous to pursue those things that we forget the rich and mutually loving relationship that God invites us into through Jesus Christ, then, then, then we've abandoned our first love. We didn't fall in love with the truth first. The truth fell in love with us. God loves us and sent his son that he might have a relationship with us. That's the basis for the church being born there in Ephesus. And so the truth is that, that what we've always stood for, what we, what we have, have guarded and protected, this truth has always said, first and foremost, love one another. God first loved us so that we might love one another, that we might love others. Our love for one another is actually what Jesus taught his disciples would be the way that the world would know that we're his disciples. So when our world, our community, looks in on the church, what they should see is not a people who've got a, a firm mental grip on what God's word declares, but a people who are well-versed in knowing what the love of God is and means in their life and is seeing that replicated and, and, and reciprocated out into the world around them. See, church, the, the, the church in Ephesus, the congregation in Ephesus had forgotten their first love. But here's the thing, and this is what I love about Miss Celine's boldness to share this with our group. God's solution for his church, which he loves, was to invite them into a season of renewal. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 5 with me. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your, your, your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, that's terrifying, mind you, that, 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 that Jesus is putting this, this marker in the ground saying, listen, unless you change course, you, you will no longer be the church that I intended you to be, right? But, but before we go to there, the, the place that we're really good at of, of kind of, uh, of giving ourselves consequences and, and beating ourselves up, look at the invitation, the gracious invitation that Jesus invites his church into. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, Church, we have the opportunity over the next three to four months to, to, to intentionally seek God to renew us as his church, to, to kind of grab hold of us, to enlighten our hearts, and to invite us to, to reimagine who we are called to be as his church. And so as we enter into this season of renewal, I'm going to ask you to keep three things in mind. Three things. That's pretty simple, right? I mean, that's what every pastor has three things. I actually have more than three things for us today, just so you know, but, but at least I'm going to say three things now that you can hold on to, right? Three things for us to keep in mind as we walk through a season of renewal. Remember, repent, and redo. God invites the church in Ephesus to remember from where they've fallen, Right? Somewhere along the line, the church has taken a wrong turn. Maybe it was just that slow little correction that, that over time has, has, has taken them off course. Whatever it is, somewhere along the line, the church has left the path that God's word has laid out for them. 
Somewhere along the way, we've, we've lost sight of what God's ideal is for his people. We've lost sight of what it means to, to be members of the body of Christ, to be members of the church. And so renewal invites us to look back on where we've come from, to, to consider when it was we first fell in love with Jesus, when we first heard his gracious and kind invitation to surrender to lay down our pride and our, 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 our hard-heartedness and our will and to follow him in faith, to, to look back, to, to think on those days, to remember what it was to, to, to know and come face-to-face with the love of God. And secondly, God invites us to, to repent. To, repentance is basically, it's changing our minds, right? It, it, does, it does two things. It starts by looking at our lives and and acknowledging and rejecting anything that is not of God. It's 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 questioning our motives and our actions and our our, our beliefs and our ideas, saying, "Is this truly of God or is this of Dan or 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 the old man, the old self that it, that that was crucified with Christ and so it needs to needs to be removed from my life." It's recognizing that there are things at work in my heart in our hearts as a congregation that maybe we need to acknowledge and repent of, to to reject as being not of what God's ideal is for his people and for his church. But then the second part of repentance is turning toward God, is making a change. It's not just reflecting on, on, on where we've gone awry, but recommitting ourselves to walking in step with God's ideal for his church. In other words, we have to take action on those things that we've reflected on. So we, we're going to remember where we've come from. We're going to remember from where we've fallen, from where we've turned away. We're going to repent of anything that is not of God's ideal for his church. And then, and this may seem a little bit redundant to us, but the third thing the Lord teaches the church to do in pursuit of renewal is to take a redo. I mean, that, the gospel is built upon grace. And, and, and here we hear Jesus very clearly say, redo, take a redo. Verse five tells us the church in Ephesus, uh, t- Jesus tells the church in Ephesus in verse five to, to do the works they did at first, to think back on those days when it became so clear to them that God loved them and that God made a way for them to live with him in eternity through Jesus Christ. And so they lived their life in response to that truth. In other words, I think Jesus invites his church to get back to the basics. We do that through remembering, repenting, and redoing. Yeah, redoing. So church, over the next three to four months, we're going to be going through a sermon series that takes us back to the basics of what it means to be the church. We're going to explore this church in Ephesus more closely. 
We're going to have a series of, uh, of preachers who are going to lead us through the book of Ephesians. Pastor Moses is going to get us started off. He's going to, he's going to, going to be a guide along the way. We're going to have some of our elders that will be preaching while I'm away. We're going to have missionaries who will come and preach from the book of, uh, of Ephesians. We're going to have some local ministry leaders that, that are also missionaries that will come and, and, and lead us in the word of God. All of this, though, regardless of the voice that stands behind the pulpit, will be proclaiming God's ideal for his church as, as shown to us through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. But consider that it's not just a letter. This is God's church. This is the church that Jesus loves. This is the very church that in the book of Revelations, Jesus says, hey, I love you. Don't forget why you first fell in love. Come back. Remember where you've fallen from. Repent of anything that is not of God and redo those works that you did at first when you first realized how much I loved you. And so, uh, honestly, I'm hoping that we don't just look at the sort of renewal that the church in Ephesus is invited into. My prayer, our elders' prayer, the the prayer of of our leaders is that, that, that God would see our journey together in this season of renewal as a renewal for our congregation right here at Trinity. So I think God is inviting us to get back to our first love. Just as as he invites the church in Ephesus here in Revelation 2 to, 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 to get back to their first love, to remember what it was, where they were when they first fell in love, to remember what it was like, and then to repent of those things that, that, that we've, we've strayed away from and to redo, to come back into that life that God puts before us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned I was going to do something different today because we're going to look at two different passages. And, and, and the Revelation 2 passage was probably a super long way to introduce the text that we want to spend in today that kind of takes us over these next three to four weeks. But, but it's important to understand that as we study the church in Ephesus, as we explore the life of the church in Ephesus, not just in these next four weeks, but, but as we, even as we get into the book of Ephesians later on, it's important that we view it through the lenses of renewal. Because I am confident that God wants to do a new thing in and among us as his people. And so today, we're going to actually, today and actually for the next three to four weeks, we're going to spend time studying and exploring the church in Ephesus through the book of Acts. We're not even going to open the book of Ephesians today. Isn't that weird, right? But this church is a church that we see recorded on and, and, and acknowledged, not just here in the book of Ephesians, but in Revelation, as we mentioned this morning, in, in the book of Acts, in First in Timothy, in First in Corinthians, a number of different places where this church is an important church for us to pay attention to because we're not so different from the, book, or from, from the church in Ephesus. In fact, we have a lot of similarities. So this morning, I just want to introduce us to the church at Ephesus as recorded for us in Acts chapter 9 and, and maybe even get us to start to think about what it was like for them when they first, their, what their first love was like when the church began in Acts chapter 19. Let me, let me read Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7 for us. Go ahead and follow along if you're in your Bibles. I know you've kept your finger in your Bible for a while. You can now flip those pages over. We're going to spend the remainder of our time here in Acts chapter 19. 
Let me read the first seven verses of our passage. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. You know what, can I pause and just pray and give thanks for God's word here, please? Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we, uh, we confess that as uh, human beings, we, we read the scriptures, and it's easy for us to to dissect, to, to, to pull apart, to try to understand. Lord, we pray that we would not be driving this ship in terms of understanding what's going on here in Acts 19. That, that it would not even be me and my word, but Lord, that we would be a people trusting for your Holy Spirit, in your Holy Spirit, to illuminate the word that you desire us to know today through Acts chapter 19. Help us, guide us, shepherd us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, as, we, as we explore the, the church in Ephesus in Acts, you have to understand the, the, the letter uh, or the book of Acts is, is a historical document. It's, it's recording the history of the church as it grew, as it was established and as it grew. And so it may sound at times like this happened and that happened and that happened, but we want to look deeper than that. We want to understand why these things are happening or what's happening in them. And so maybe you noticed that as I read this passage, what we read together is the birth story of the church in Ephesus. Now, these are the days that Jesus' letter to the Ephesian believers in Revelation chapter 2 is pointing back to, those days when their first love, when they first began to to live with and, and, and live by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's very clear to me, and hopefully it will be to us by the end of our time together today, that the church is only the church when it's built on two key ingredients, right? Their first love was grounded first and foremost by their belief in the name of the Lord Jesus and then when they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Those two key ingredients. Now, we're gonna come back to them in a little bit, but before we do, I wanna point out that, 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 that prior to Paul's arrival here in verse one, these disciples weren't yet followers of Jesus, And in fact, I would propose that the church in Ephesus was not yet born. Up to now, these disciples here in Ephesus were almost but not quite yet a church, right? Luke tells us that that when Paul gets to Ephesus, he finds some disciples, but we're not clear on who they are disciples of. Right? Many times when we read our Bibles and we see that word disciple, we assume it's a disciple of Jesus. Here, I don't think we can make that assumption, at least not here in chapter, uh, verse 1 of Acts 19. Now, they are, they're, they're, they're almost disciples of Jesus, but not quite yet. 
I know we, we just had oh, celebrate Easter, and, and one of the things many of us have over Easter is ham. One of my favorite things about having ham on Easter is having leftover ham to make ham and cheese sandwiches, right? Now, if I'm going to make the perfect ham and cheese sandwich, I start with a, a slice of, of white bread, maybe a, maybe a dinner roll, but probably a, a slice of white bread, put a couple slices of, 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 of the baked ham on there, maybe some cheese, or maybe, maybe two slices of cheese, but at least one slice of cheese, sorry. But, but then if you ask me at this point, it's not really a ham and cheese sandwich. It's almost a classic ham and cheese sandwich, but, but it's not quite yet a ham and cheese sandwich. Not until I, I, I spread some, some mayonnaise on the bread and, and, and put that other, other piece of bread on top, right? It's got to have mayonnaise. It can't have Miracle Whip or anything else like that. It's got to have mayonnaise to be a classic ham and cheese sandwich. Without the mayonnaise, it's almost, but not quite yet, a ham and cheese sandwich. I mean, if ham and cheese sandwich isn't your thing, consider some other classic dishes. You, you can't have hamburgers without pickles or, or peanut butter and jelly without the jelly, right? They're just, it's just not, it's not, it's not what is classically meant to be. Without these key ingredients, or with these key ingredients missing, it's not what we're, what we're aiming for. It's not the classic dish that we long for. And so when Paul arrives in, in Ephesus, he finds some disciples who are all or almost, but not quite yet, followers of Jesus. And so the church is not yet born. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 18, so if you just kind of look above in your, in, in your Bibles or maybe the, the page before, that, that, that these disciples have been taught by an educated Jewish man named Apollos, who, who is most likely a disciple, actually he is a disciple of John the Baptist. Look at verse 24 to 25 in Acts 18. We're told this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, came to Ephesus. He, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, here's the thing. Apollos knew the scriptures, he, he was instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he only knew the baptism of John. He was almost a disciple of Jesus, but not quite. Now, I think it's important we see he's not teaching a false doctrine here. He, he's, not, he, he's not misleading or, or misguiding people. He was teaching them what he, what he knew, namely that what he'd learned in John's ministry, that there would be one that comes after John who would be the Messiah. So the character of the disciples' faith becomes clear when Paul asks them if they've received the Holy Spirit. You see how they respond in verse 2 to 3 of our passage? He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Uh, they didn't, they, we didn't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. Wait, there, there's something else? Tell me more, right? These, these aren't disciples of Jesus, and they're not followers of Jesus' way. They're disciples of John the Baptist. They've been following what they've been taught and trained up in through John's ministry. 
Now, I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I don't mean this like they're lesser than or anything like that, but I mean that, that, that they've, they've been given a certain truth, but it's an almost but not quite yet truth that they've been given. I, I think it's important that we understand that the ministry of John produces an almost but not quite yet faith. And that's what he was always intended to be. He was always intended to point to one beyond himself, to point to the ministry of one who would come after him. The, the, the one he proclaims in, in John 1 is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so as, as disciples of John's baptism, these people would have been taught about repentance and, and forgiveness symbolized through the baptism, the washing of water. They would have been taught that, that John was that voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. They would have heard John even deny that he's not the Messiah. When, when Pharisees and, and leaders from the temple came to, to ask him, John tells them, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm pointing to one who's going to come after me. And, and so these disciples, they would have known that part. Now think about this for a moment. If these disciples didn't even know that there is a Holy Spirit, then guess what? They're unaware of the Pentecost. They're unaware of that moment when God poured out his spirit on all of his people through faith in Jesus Christ. And if they're unaware of the Pentecost, which was when the Holy Spirit was poured out, then they're unaware of the commissioning that Jesus gives to his church. They're unaware of the fact that Jesus has gathered his followers, centered around him, and send them out with a mission. Listen to verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. This is Jesus giving his, a commission to his followers. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, Pentecost is a defining moment for the church. It was a historical moment when God's spirit was poured out on all of his people, on all of those who believe in him through Jesus Christ and are walking with him in faith. And, and, and not only does God, is it defining a moment because God poured out his, his spirit on his people, but because he's done so with the purpose of giving them a shared purpose and mission to go and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so the church here in, in, in Ephesus, when Paul comes along, it's not yet born. It's not yet aware of the one beyond John's ministry that, that John's ministry pointed to. And it's not aware of the fact that as a church, they've been given the Holy Spirit to go forth with their shared mission of being Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. So the church is not the church until two key ingredients are introduced into the lives of the disciples. Look at verse four to six with me in Acts chapter 19. And Paul said this, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. See, these, these 12 men are transformed from disciples of John, 
the disciples of, of, of John the Baptist, and they're transformed into disciples of Jesus, and the church is born. When these two things happen, when they believe in the one who was to come after John, namely Jesus, not just that there would be one, but hey, look at it's Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. When they believe in his name, symbolized by being baptized into his name, by, by, by being baptized into his life, into his, his death and resurrection, into his way of being and his, his, his truth. So when, when they believe in the one who comes after John, uh, John, namely Jesus, and then the second key ingredient is as a result of their belief in Jesus and their baptism in his name, when they receive the Holy Spirit, which God promises to each of those who believe. So for all of those who believe in the name of the one who comes after John, namely Jesus, they're also given in that moment God's spirit to indwell within them to work and to transform them as children of God. And so to believe in Jesus and be baptized in his name is to believe that, that he is the Messiah that the scriptures had promised from the very beginning, that, that God has promised to his people to, to rescue and redeem his people through his chosen one, that this is Jesus. And when we believe in Jesus that he is that one, then, then that's one key ingredient to the church being born. To, to believe in Jesus and to be baptized in his name, it's to believe that, that all of the scriptures have pointed to him and all of God's promises are fulfilled through him. It's to believe Jesus' own words, his own teaching, that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not just to, to believe it like, yeah, that sounds like good truth, but, but then to live in light of that truth, to commit to obeying his teaching and, and, and building our lives upon Jesus' own life. And that to be baptized into Jesus' name is, is to embrace it, that Jesus alone can forgive us and cleanse us of our sins. To, to be baptized is to say, I'm no longer going to live this way, but I'm going to live with Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus, forevermore. And as a result of that, we receive the second key ingredient— we, we, we believe that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And it's not just having the Spirit of God dwelling within us, but that Spirit is doing something. He, he's working in us, transforming us, changing us, growing us. He, he, he's giving us new birth and then empowering us to live the life of obedience that Jesus calls us to. So, the church is not the church until it's made up of people who believe in the name of Jesus and as a result are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. This is the beginning and the foundation of the Ephesian church. This is that moment that, that Jesus invites his, the church in Revelation 2 to look back on and to remember their first love, to remember what was going on when they too believed in the name of Jesus. They were baptized into the life with Jesus and as a result have been obedient to the Holy Spirit working in them to change them and transform them. Fast forward 30 years from this moment here in Acts chapter 19 and, and this, is, this is where that church has gone astray. This is what they've forgotten. And Trinity, I, I wonder what things we might 
come to realize that maybe we've forgotten as we go through this journey over the next three, four, five months. And, 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 hope, and honestly, hopefully, much longer than that. Right? As, we, as we enter into this season of renewal and we, we remember back to that moment when we first fell in love with God, when we, when we made him our first love, when we made him a priority in our lives, I, I wonder what things we'll see and notice that we've forgotten along the way. I, I wonder what people outside the church think when they, when they look at us. I wonder, I wonder if they see a building overflowing with people whose, whose entire lives are being transformed by the Holy Spirit because we believe that Jesus is God's Messiah. Or, or, or do they see a bunch of religious people who, who show up once or twice a month to sing some songs, fall asleep during the sermon, and then grab a cup of coffee after the service, right? Or, 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 or do they see people who, who are passionately and energetically pursuing Jesus together? obeying all of his teachings, depending on God's spirit to make it happen in their lives. What does the world see when they look at the church? I'm not saying that what the world sees should define who we are, but it's a great moment of, of, of inflection or reflection of saying, you know, who have we become? What, is, what, what does the world see? Because you know what they should see? They should see a people who are passionately pursuing Jesus because they been baptized into his life, into the name of Jesus, and are following him, not in their own strength, but in the strength of the one who indwells them, the Holy Spirit. What I want us to see and believe over these next three to four months is that maybe the church is not what we think it is. It is is the church that Jesus established a congregation of perfect and polished lives? Or is it possible that the church that Jesus establishes is made up of broken, misshapen people who are in the process of being transformed by the Holy Spirit who indwells them by faith in Jesus Christ? Now, I don't know if you've ever gone to a pumpkin patch to pick out a pumpkin uh, in the fall, but but when you do, you're looking for a certain kind of pumpkin. Most of us, I mean, there's, there's always that one or two in the group that they're, they're looking for the, the oddly misshapen, like Charlie Brown tree, whatever. But most of us, when we go looking for a pumpkin, we, we look for that perfectly rounded, smooth-skinned, perfect stem pumpkin that we want to bring home, we want to carve up, we want to we bake, you know, whatever it would be. But we, we don't... I think that this is how we oftentimes view our, our, understand our view of the church. That when we look at the church, we should see, we believe, a perfectly rounded, smooth surface, zero blemish, no warts, perfect stemmed pumpkin, perfect stemmed church, right? We, 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 we wonder, how does it look from the outside? Does it have all the programs we want? What's its, what's its music like? What does the pastor say or wear or do from the pulpit? But, but let me ask you something. When, when you're standing in the pumpkin patch and you see that perfect pumpkin from a distance, what happens when you get up close and you pick it up? You're excited. You're thinking, this is it. This is it. And then you turn it over. It's got that flat back. 
Maybe, maybe, even, maybe even it's got like some, some divots or something like that. The, 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 the stem is not what it appears like from a distance. It's blemished. It's broken. It's, it's incomplete. It's not what we think it is. And church, I think sometimes we do this when we think of what the church should be. It should have this program. It should be doing this. It should look like this. We're focused on all these exteriors and neglecting to ask the key questions, are these a people who are fully devoted to believing in the name of Jesus and living according to his way because they have the Holy Spirit in them to make it so, to empower them to live this way. See, I think Jesus' church is a community of imperfect people whose lives are in the process of being transformed because they have these two key ingredients at work in them. Because these two key ingredients are central to who we are and why we're gathered. Because we believe in Jesus as God's Messiah. And, and, and this is witnessed then by the Holy Spirit indwelling us and transforming us. Church, we are not a religious club. We're a spiritual family. Individually, we're misshapen, and we're blemished like pumpkins in a pump, pumpkin patch. But what makes us beautiful is not our shape or our appearance on the outside. What makes us beautiful and what makes us holy is our belief in Jesus as the Messiah and our dependence on God's spirit at work in and among us. This is what these 12 men learned in Acts chapter 19. That they, they were not... They were not yet what God wanted them to be until they too believed in the name of Jesus, were baptized into his life, and then they received the Holy Spirit to work in them, transform them, and grow them. See, as a church, we're a spiritual body made up of the people of the resurrection we celebrated last Sunday. We're centered on the life of Jesus. We're centered on the life of our Lord who was crucified, dead, and buried, who came back to life, and as a result, we've been given his Holy Spirit to transform us, to work in us, to make us whole as we, as we follow him by faith. Guys, this is what it means at the most basic level to be the church. The renewal we seek from God begins when we remember that this is where we've come from. When, when, when we repent of having turned away from this and made other things a priority as opposed to clinging to these two truths, these two key ingredients. And when we, when we redo the works we did at first, namely believe wholeheartedly in the name of Jesus and embrace the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. To, to not embrace the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but in our lives. So Trinity, over the next few months, let's remember what makes us the church. Let's repent of all the ways we've strayed from God's ideal for his church, and then let's redo the things of our faith we did when we first fell in love with God. Believe in the name of Jesus and trust his Holy Spirit to work in us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we, we do thank you for your word. 
And Lord, it's easy, as much as it seems funny for me to say this right now, it's easy for me to stand up here and proclaim this truth. It's a whole other thing to believe it and to live according to it out there in the world. And so, Lord, I ask and pray that you would help us, that your, your spirit would, would help us to remember from where we've fallen, to repent of those places that we've gone astray, that, that we've made our lives about anything that is not of God, and, and, and empower us to redo the works that you gave us to do when we first fell in love with you and made you our first love. Bring us back to our first love, Lord. Teach us what it means to be your church. Empower us to live obediently to that truth. And Lord, we will be excited to see what you can and will do in and among your church as Jesus establishes it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.